0: A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is produced by Authentic Form and Function. We're a design and technology studio working in the real estate space. We help developers and architects innovate their work with unique brands, websites, and digital tools. Last year we launched Amplify, a digital real estate marketing platform that combines high-touch custom design with out-of-the-box real estate marketing technology. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com slash Amplify. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else you should speak with, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com.
1: I think that if you're in it all the time and you've never left, it's easy to just think that all new ideas are crazy.
0: On this episode, I'm speaking with Matt McFeely. Matt is a native of Greenville, South Carolina, and recently moved back home after a decade plus in San Francisco and Austin, Texas. His work over that time has been at the intersection of finance, entrepreneurship, and real estate. An admittedly strange combination, but one that has led to a drive to challenge the status quo of the way real estate development is done. He's gone from learning the ropes in fundraising and financial analysis in the private equity world to partnering with developers around the country to structure, finance, and market real estate projects, to acquiring and developing his own deals. Matt is now taking what he's learned and going all in in creating a sustainable model for real estate development as a force for good in our communities. Most recently, this can be found within the Chapel Greenville project, which we get into in this episode. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump on in. Matt, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here.
0: So, before we jump in, I always like to give listeners a sense of of background and history, kind of where you came from, where you grew up. What is that backstory? you know, what was your family like? And you know, as a youngster, what was your impression of the world? What was the lens that you were looking at?
1: yeah i it's it's an interesting question i've I've done a lot of thought about this, just about my background and really Sometimes thinking it's not quite interesting enough, you know, to have a have a really good story. But mostly, just you know, I, I I didn't have a ton of conflict. Really good family. Grew up here in Greenville, South Carolina, just suburban, upper middle class lifestyle. You know, really in a town that I think it's maybe a little bit more progressive than a lot of places in the southeast here. But but really, just a a growing halfway. Not a crazy, interesting childhood. Just, just really happy. I played sports, had had good friends, lived in the suburbs. I think a lot of a lot of things happened for me a little bit later, just as I kind of went through life, got some new experiences, and saw the world a bit. But I look back on it really fondly. Good upbringing. For that, so I think in a way that that did kind of shape me and and got me interested in some very different things.
0: Mm. Yeah, you know, we we were talking uh, previously about how your upbringing was very sports focused. I think you even said you were kind of a late bloomer in terms of thinking about life. You know, maybe outside of yourself and your your bubble there in Greenville. And, and I would say I was probably pretty similar. I kind of had a uh, relatively simple upbringing, nothing too crazy happening, um, and then my eyes really opened up you know, when I left home and kinda of went out uh, away for school and kind of started traveling the the world outside of my bubble. Where did you actually end up for college and, and did you did you head yeah. to college for something real estate related?
1: No, no, I, I actually, you know, my, my plan all along was to get out, go to the mountains, do I had had a lot of different plans It ended up being a small liberal arts school here in Greenville called Furman University. So it's a good school, really good school, less than 3000 people, small, beautiful campus. I did not go for real estate, I went for business. So it wasn't even any (laughs) more specific than that. And honestly, I think that there's a lot of good things that that they teach, a lot of good programs at Furman. It just so happened that business was not one of them. You know, I don't think I had one professor that had ever even worked in a company, much less run a company. So we get these kind of lifetime professors that were teaching out of a textbook, and and that was my experience with education, really all the way through college. I mean, I I view college as a as a time where I grew up a lot, but didn't really learn all that much about certainly not what I do now. You know, that fits into the same category as me being a late bloomer. That there were some external reasons for that, this maybe being one of them. I didn't really find my. Place in the world until kind of post college. So, so, yeah, I would do that a little bit differently, but uh, if I had to do it over again, but I guess I, I kind of did when I came to coming to business school and really trying to look for the opposite of that, honestly.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. You know, post college, I know that you spent some time in Nicaragua and that really seems to have changed that mindset and changed that, you know, kind of impression and direction that you had of where you were headed in life. What was that experience like? How did you end up down there? Yeah. Give us the story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was definitely a turning point for me, just mentally and and really opening my mind to a new new ways of thinking, new ways that the the world lives. I think when you look at things like this, um, you know, just as background, a group of my friends in college and, and really from a couple of different universities, there are about 10 of us that started a nonprofit. Went down there. We kind of modeled it after almost a mini Peace Corps uh, sort of program, but focused on one community. So we were raising money and working in these different programs from sports and community center. Built a health clinic, did a lot of things there. But I think that that what it really taught me was that I think I think we got a whole lot more out of that than anybody in Nicaragua did. I mean, we had friends, and, and you know, it was a beautiful thing. But coming into a place and thinking that you're going to go save them somehow, uh, I think that's a very common common mindset. Um, and I probably had that going in. And, and that has shaped me you know, pretty substantially moving forward to, to the things that I want to be a part of really is, is to take the essence of what's already there, open up new opportunities for those people, rather than go try to change things. So I think you'll probably see some themes of that uh, into the real estate and different projects I've worked on. But yeah, that that was something that really Opened my mind in a lot of those ways, but even just as I say it right now, I think I'm connecting a, a few dots from that to, to what I'm currently doing.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. I, and, and it seems like you had the opportunity to connect with different people down there, and you were there for about a year. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I was there for about a year, a little bit more. Came back to South Carolina after that. Got, got into sales for a real estate company here. Kind of really the opposite, <laughs> to be honest. As a Resort residential real estate, and you know I'm just hitting the phones, basically making fifty to a hundred calls a day, and and uh, kind of hating every second of that actual work. But certainly, look back fondly. I, I see that as a foundation to really the skill based side of what I'm doing. I, I didn't enjoy the actual work, but I would recommend anybody starting in a role like that. That you are just dialing. You're learning how to present yourself. You're learning how to you know, break through walls where you want to quit, but you just keep going anyway. So it was the opposite in, in nature, I would say, but I think it was the right thing for me. Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I would say one of the most misunderstood perhaps things about being a, a business owner and entrepreneur is you, you do need to be able to speak for yourself and and present yourself and discuss why you add value to a process or to a product. And it seems like that time was really valuable for you to to now at least take a step back and say... You know that was a time when I really was able to grow in that experience and kind of figure out who I am, how to speak for myself and uh, on many levels that's that's invaluable, which a lot of people don't have that experience, so that's that's pretty cool.
1: yeah, you can't learn that in school either. Those are things you just have to do with repetition, and maybe there's some schools that do this. I've never heard of them that teach you how to cold call or teach you how to do something a hundred times in a row and and know that a good part of the money you make is based off of doing that. so I, I think that's just. Something that has to be experienced,
0: yeah, I made a note here that this was right around two thousand and eight, and you know I think the phrase is for a lot of people, you know and then then two thousand and eight hit and x, y, z happened after that. And for you, it was two thousand and eight hit, you sold your car, you moved to San Francisco, and you started working for some startups. and really, You know, if we pause here up to this point, you had a taste of a few different things between business to development to cold calling, sales. And then you actually decided to kind of pivot and move back to the South in the form of Austin. Why did you head there? Why was that the best move for you? Um, You know, what was the impetus for that?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is another one of those uh, pivotal times for me. I mean, anybody that was working in the, 2008 range, I think has a good story, whether that is, you know, finding a brand new industry, just trying to really just figuring things out. It was the first real recession that I had been a part of for, for sure. Um, and so I was on a particular track and it just halted completely. It more disintegrated than anything. And I struggled for a while after that. I mean, me moving to San Francisco is just a buddy had a place that was available and. I just needed a change so really just figured figured it out and continued to do that um for the next 5 years working working from one thing to the next I think learning a lot but I don't really have a good story putting those things together so it was it was more of a uh figure out what's next sort of thing and the reason I went to Austin which ended up staying there for a while but it was originally to attend a um business school called Acton School of Business and A little bit of a, a, I mentioned earlier, I was looking for pretty much the opposite of my undergrad experience with with business. And that's exactly what Acton is. It's, It's a short, really intense program, kind of the Navy SEALs sort of style boot camp of business where you are you are learning extremely practical things. So on the spectrum of theoretical to practical, it is 100% all the way towards practical. How do you manage a business? All the professors or teachers there have to actively be managing and running their own business also. It was something that really teaches you to learn which questions to ask, You know, get that pattern recognition within business. And I think just really coming out of that, what I wanted to do was to Fill in some gaps of skills within the financial side of things. That was what I went into it, trying to get. But I got, a, I did get that, and it was it's, it's something I use every day. But beyond that, it was it was really just kind of the confidence that the people who are out there doing interesting things are don't really have all the answers. They just have seen maybe enough or have the uh, confidence to to ask the right questions and to go make it happen themselves. So that was a big part of that move and stayed in Austin for a while from there, but certainly a, a pivot point for me.
0: I made a note here that you said that you learned more in one class than four years of college. <laughs> and it made me laugh a little bit because I can imagine... You know, thinking back to my own college experiences, hearing about your own as well, you know, it is a time for personal growth. If anything, education is there and the time to to learn is there for sure. But I can just imagine that going to a, a business school that is so far on the practical side just really probably woke you up in the sense that, okay, this is what I want to do, this is what's motivating me. Finding out your strengths and weaknesses, and I have to imagine that that was just such a vastly different experience from the previous college experience. I also made a note here that you said that you were working like a hundred hours a week and it was a way to prep for real life. Talk to me about that. like what was that experience like
1: yeah it's it's more to do than you actually have hours in the day to to complete so and that's by design, so really you know that wasn't a fact to learn it was more of a figure out what's important sort of skill that you have to learn so there's there's more than you can do so find out what the crucial pieces are and do the best you can i think that that maybe not every phase of business or every certainly not every day it's not it's not always a, a sprint in business since then but there are certainly Periods of time that are very much like that. So learning that you have a few walls, you know, that you really can break through, you have, you can do more than you think you can, I think is a big part of that. And then also, also just saying, what are the crucial things to get done? And how, how do I really hone my ability to get, get those things done and have everything? I mean, really, everything else can go, go away during those moments. And if they're not urgent or absolutely necessary. So that's how the school was designed. I mean, we we had, it was all case study, so it was like re- real life stuff. You had to put yourself in the shoes of the entrepreneur in a story or in a in a case. So um, all of that means that you know life and complexity and all those things come into play for for each one of these discussions and and uh, and case studies. So it was fun. Like I'm I'm kind of a project based person, uh, and so I thrived with this. I really enjoyed it rather than just you know reading a book and and telling you what you learned.
0: Right. Well, after Acton, what came next? What was the most meaningful next step for you at that point?
1: yeah, so I stayed in Austin up until about a year and a half ago was in austin for for six years worked in private equity uh, i I had a focus on both real estate and the financial side of things, so fundraising uh, structuring uh, deals, things like that. So I worked in private equity i really I learned a lot about how that business works the capital markets, and then Started working with uh, another partner of mine that we, we basically worked alongside other real estate developers around the country and we helped structure, market and finance a lot of those deals. So we we really piggybacked off of, off of other people of other, uh, we, we learned a lot about how things are done and really got a bit of, uh, you know we can use their portfolio a bit for for moving forward ourselves so i think that was an important part for for me as well just to get a broad range of experience of how things are done i worked with a, a modular builder in um in austin as well where i had the a similar experience where i was um working with really progressive uh developers trying to think through Different ways of doing things, mostly because I think the, really the system is a bit broken for how these deals get done from the cost of, of labor, materials, et cetera. So I got this, this, um, this really broad view of how people are trying to solve problems. Um, and I've taken that with me from there. So, uh, really I view that as the foundation for for what I'm doing now to, to have again, this comes back to pattern recognition, seeing a bunch of problems that keep popping up in different ways, and uh, and it's helped me try to think through ways to create a new model uh, around that. So um, so that was a big part of that that period of time.
0: Yeah, and I I, I want to get to that soon here. So let's let's talk about that transition to Greenville. I mean, you just you just mentioned it was about a year and a half, two years ago. You ended up moving back to Greenville after your time in Austin. And then when we last spoke, you mentioned that you had this, this notion of somewhat of like a crystal ball having lived in Austin. What did you mean by that specifically?
1: Being in Austin is, well, I'll, I'll start with my visits back to Greenville. My family lives in Greenville. And as we would come back and visit over this, you know, 10, 11 year stretch of being away from Greenville, I think you get this really interesting View into how things are changing, kind of like when you uh, you haven't seen someone's puppy after after two weeks, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, it's, it grew so much!" But if you're in it all along, you never really realize how much they're growing. I think that was true of Greenville for for me, where at one point, and this was probably three or four years ago, I came back and it just felt different. It felt like new things were happening. It wasn't just the incremental, you know, just marginal changes that had been happening for. 20 years. Um, I think Greenville's done a really good job with that. It's reinvented itself in in a lot of ways, but that was a moment where it became a more interesting place to me. And since then, being in Austin, you hear people talk about those exact moments uh, 15, 20 years ago in Austin. And I wasn't there during that time, but even in that six years I was there, you saw an amazing amount of change happen, I mean, just rapidly throughout that. So so, having a sense of how that happened and learning what this could—I mean, I don't think Greenville is going to be Austin, but I do think that there are a lot of parallels for how it's growing, the type of interest that people have in Greenville, how you know the the food scene, the um, the really just the, the scene in general, and the type of people and um, and the nature of the city. I think it's becoming another tier of city rather than just a slightly larger version of of what it used to be. So I think Austin definitely did that. Austin might be doing that again right now with with how massive companies are moving there and it's it's a uh, it's going from a tier 2 probably to a tier 1 city. But that has provided a good um a good framework for thinking about how, you know, different neighborhoods, different areas I think that if you're in it all the time and you've never left, it's easy to just think that all new ideas are crazy. You know they're not going to work because they haven't before. Um so I think coming coming a bit from the outside is a is in this scenario, I think that's an advantage.
0: My next note here that I wrote down, I think probably parlays into the following question really well, but I wrote down that you were seeing that the model is broken with what gets built out there. And I want to know now that you're back in Greenville, I do want to get to this chapel project soon here, because that's really exciting to talk about um, definitely kind of the the queen stage of this conversation, no doubt. But first, tell me what you meant by that and, and maybe a little bit more around your mindset of coming back into Greenville, and was that really a driving force with what your next steps were as you were getting resituated within that community? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean you give up a few things coming from a place like Austin. I mean, lots of cities like it, that just the food, we had a great community there and interesting things to do. It's just coming to a smaller place. And and again, in, in the Southeast, which has, you know, it's certainly its own charm that other places don't have, but, it's smaller there's not quite as many of those uh I won't get into too many specifics but there are sacrifices made coming to a place like this but i think the the real determining factor for besides family besides you know wanting to be here and you know i've got three little boys and want them to be around their grandparents and and uh so that's that's certainly a, a huge factor but professionally really thinking about um the stage that Greenville is in, and the type of change that I think I actually have the ability to affect uh, in a place like this yeah that's a that's a big part of that, and bringing a lot of uh, these ideas that might just not even live in a town like like Greenville at all right now, or other smaller towns uh, throughout the country, so that uh, placemaking and uh, community development side of things and and really marrying a a few of these things that we've been working on, I saw an opportunity to really dive into that here, for sure.
0: Speaking of opportunity, let's talk briefly about opportunity zones. And And I know that this is something that sort of just started around the time of you coming back to Greenville in that area. For the listeners who don't totally understand opportunity zones or how they work or how they fit into the development process, can you give us a quick two-minute crash course on on why those matter?
1: Sure, sure. And I'll connect this to part of the reason. The opportunity that I saw in Greenville has a good opportunity zone that was designated. Um, and really with those things that you mentioned with the model being broken, I think opportunity zones fix at least a part of that. In terms of, I'll go deeper into that in just one sec. But in terms of just the mechanics of opportunity zones, it's a federal program. Um, actually, the senator of South Carolina, Senator Scott, you know, was one of the major backers or writers of the bill and has been a big part of it happening in the first place. Um, so South Carolina is an interesting place for for that. But in, in terms of just how it works. You have low income neighborhoods, kind of census tracts. I think that 25% of the overall, of a state's overall low income census tracts could be chosen. They were chosen by the governors of each state. So once once that happens, you have your areas that are designated opportunity zones. And then the goal is to really provide a little bit of counterbalance or maybe like a tipping of the scales to attract more capital to those places. And with that capital, it's meant to create jobs and to build a bit of vibrancy into places that might not otherwise receive any of that. I mean, a lot of what I get frustrated with is really the only way to make the numbers work sometimes for a development is to, because of the price of land, because of the price of labor materials etc you have to build to the high end of the market in order to make money and then all of a sudden you do that in places that already have uh, a lot of a lot of these and and um, they start looking exactly the same and then you get a bunch of the institutional money that's just coming in and buying them after they're built so they're kind of built to flip and with a with an opportunity zone I think there are interesting things that prevent that and that as you invest into one of these projects, it has to be held for ten years minimum in order to get the tax incentives. So if you have a if you have a capital gain from selling a stock, selling another uh, your company or a piece of real estate. If you have a capital gain, either short term or long term, you can, instead of paying taxes on that right away, you can roll that into an opportunity fund, which, which then is going to invest either into real estate or an opportunity zone business. So all for that, like that's where the tax incentives come in, but you don't get them until 10 years out or at least the full effect of that. So Lots of little details in there um, that you can geek out on, but really the the idea is that it is a channel for money into projects that hopefully have a different incentive, a different mindset than uh, than a lot of the things that, that you'll see uh, re- really over the last couple decades. Things that get built are because the market almost demands that those things get built.
0: Hey, listeners! Just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our firm, Authentic Form and Function. I wanted to let you know about an internal research project we recently completed, where we analyzed the digital strategy of over seventy-five commercial real estate projects across multiple asset and project classes. We distilled this research into an ebook called "The Real Estate Website Blueprint," which you can download for free on our website at authenticff.com/blueprints. In it, we provide several strategies and tactics you can use on your next project to better position in the market, increase project awareness, and accelerate leasing. To download the ebook, be sure to visit authenticff.com slash blueprint. Let's transition now into the Chapel Greenville project, which is your baby, which is I'm really excited to talk about this because it has so many, so many nuances to it that I think the listeners are going to really enjoy this project and learning more about it. Tell us how that came about and what are you hoping to accomplish with this project in the upcoming years?
1: Sure. Yep. Uh, this is definitely what I've uh, been focused on. I mean, this specific site, this specific project really has been gone for maybe a year and a half two years uh but i've been there's been a longer lead up uh to that you know like the you ever heard that saying of overnight successes are are really uh i mean it's like the tip of the iceberg all you see is what what's there but there's been a lot of time a lot of learning a lot of a lot of thought put into it leading up to that moment so i feel that way about this project this is uh As I was looking for opportunities on sites and and buildings didn't know what that would look like exactly but uh, saw this old warehouse which is downtown less than a mile from Main Street of downtown Greenville. It's about 40,000 square feet and uh, it's in a neighborhood that is a Greenville is an old textile town. So you have all these mills um, and mill villages uh, scattered throughout the city. And that's where this is. This is a mill village. Um, where this is is kind of in the center of that mill village. Um, and it used to be a bakery, so uh for that kind of serviced the neighborhood. So it's got this really interesting history to it. Um, but right now it is it, it is um it's really maybe the last little pocket of Greenville that has not seen much change at all. And and as other neighborhoods have really been developed, and and uh, you know investors coming in and buying all the homes, fixing them up or tearing them down and building new homes. Not much of that has happened here. And a lot of the other people that have been forced out of other neighborhoods have kind of ended up here. So there's there's a good bit of homeless. The homeless population of Greenville kind of congregates here. Um, there's a bit of crime, not much violent crime, but uh, certainly enough that people are scared of this neighborhood. But things are happening all around it. And there's, I can point to a dozen projects that are happening all around it. It just hasn't really happened within it. So it's on the verge. And really what, what I'm interested in, um, and again, this is a long term project. Uh, we have no plans of selling it at, at, um, at really at any point unless something crazy happens. But the idea that you can build something and, and, Help create the kind of momentum that actually helps the neighborhood thrive, rather than I've heard it called a, a spaceship development, where it's just like this foreign object kind of comes in from the top and comes down, and a bunch of outsiders <laughs> start start occupying that. Um, and and that's that's the opposite of what we want to uh, what we want to create. It's this ground up mindset that um, taps into the personality of the neighborhood already it presents new opportunities for the people that are there. Uh, there are lots of ways we plan on doing this, but the overall philosophy is this real estate as community development while still being a sustainable, profitable like, investment and, and development that you don't need outside grants or government funding to actually do. So the, the goal is to rinse and repeat and, and try to do this in, in lots of places
0: beyond. You mentioned to me that, that you felt like this approach really opens up doors in a different way. And, and one of the ones that I was most curious about is this idea of moving away from the traditional landlord-tenant relationship to more of a partnership relationship where you may have an opportunity to invest in their business. You may have an opportunity to get creative with their terms. Talk to me about how that comes into play with the chapel project.
1: Sure, this is an interesting one because the world we're living in now, with COVID and post post COVID uh, work from home, all these different pieces of the environment now that have that have changed drastically, really in in a matter of months. I think that we were thinking about these things already, trying to do really challenging this relationship uh, between tenant landlord. Even that term, I, I don't love. Uh, because it seems like it's it's uh, they're at odds a little bit. There's a inherent conflict in even just the words there, and so thinking of them more as partners. And uh, I think the original reason for thinking about that was was to um, really think about how do you, how do you align incentives uh, within the space, and then how do you also almost curate the experience and the environment that this community is within this building. Um, I think that that's hard to do when you're just saying, hey, here's some space pretty nice. Who wants to rent it and whoever you know says they want to rent it as long as they are credit worthy. They come in and then you get a bit of a hodgepodge unless unless you get lucky. I'm not so interested in that. I think that it's also you end up competing with really every other space in the city uh, when you do that also. So I think even though it's not conventional, if you are able to do it do it well, uh, I believe it it de-risks the project because then you've got this uh, ecosystem and like a vibrant neighborhood or community. Uh, it, it's it's a uh, it's kind of at the core of what. Of what we want this to be that's something that that needs no <laughs> explanation it needs no uh, you don't compete with that it's a reason people won't leave a space as well so um, so in my mind, that's worth spending money on it's worth challenging the status quo with um, I think that uh, in order to do that, um, that I mean, th- there are lots of challenges for that. Um, and this is part of why that system's broken because you have all these pieces. You have to be able to fund the project in the first place. And getting the financing right up front is so crucial for this um, because if you just take in really expensive money, that is looking for, again, a flip it in two years, or they just need their 20% IRR, then you're going to be locked into a certain path where that's one of the reasons you end up seeing places that are just built to the high end of the market. So if you can get it right up front, and then you have so many new doors open to challenge things like this, you don't kind of have those chains of saying we have to give this amount of money every single month. You can take some new risks. You can, I think, I think those things will come uh, and create something that's really unique in the market too. So yeah, I get all, I get all heated when I'm talking about this. I can go into lot, lots of different, lots of different parts of it. <laughs>
0: so just tell me no, story. it's great. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really good. And, and I think um, this part lays into the idea of developing a community in, in a more legitimate way, you know, rather than the, the spaceship coming in, dropping down a a thing, a building, you know, a multifamily spot at the higher end of the market, you know, maybe a mixed use space that is only able to cater to, you know, really expensive dining, you know, things like that. I mean, there, there are very real challenges with developing a community in a sustainable way. You're already getting to this, but I want to hear more about how you plan to address that with chapel and, I think one of the key words that you mentioned to me previously was incubation, like this idea of incubating a community within chapel and then hopefully sort of its roots grow and kind of spread outside of the building itself. What are a couple of different ways that you're trying to to do that or at least thinking about doing that with the project?
1: yeah, incubation i mean that's a buzzword sometimes you know startup incubators or uh, things of things like that. Uh, I think that that idea, though, can be broadened into some different different ways of of creating opportunity. So, if you think about just community development and like what are the pieces that you need to provide in order to have like real community development where there are new jobs created, there are there's access to people that wouldn't otherwise have it. Because if you're just coming in and providing jobs to people that can get. Any job they want, anyway, then that has a limited effect. But if you are providing, for example, access to capital is a is a big deal for people that don't uh, have necessarily a good credit history, people from low income neighborhoods, uh, people of color. You look historically, this has been one of the big problems, and and as as you think about that as a generational issue. It is something that builds on itself over generations. So, uh, you end up not having the network that people like probably you and I have it built into our families and our, um, like that I got that first job coming back from Nicaragua from someone that I had met probably, I think through my dad. Um, so these things happen. And we call it just organic or networking, but it doesn't happen in the same ways for so many people. So, as you think about community development, you think about how to address those types of things. Um, one of them is access to capital. So, if we are, uh, let's say there's a, a local restaurateur that maybe it's just he, he's been doing a, um, I mean, this is a, a real example, um, has been doing, you know, learned how to um, make. Texas barbecue off of YouTube and has a a food truck or just does it on the, on the street. And it's extremely popular. Would love to open up a restaurant, but. Can't go get a bank loan. Can't even, you know, wouldn't know where to start to, to, uh, you know, get the capital to start a space or even put the down payment on a space. Um, this is an opportunity that we could say, okay, we will design it. Uh, we will help design it with with your input. We will actually invest into the business and equip the uh, the restaurant space, and it is our investment into this this person, this company as well. And that's and when you take that to the next step of really challenging what the business model of you know tenant landlord relationship looks like we're more partners at that point right so it could be a percentage of revenue that that we that we work through with that rather than a set lease or i mean lots of different creative ways of doing that but we all win in that scenario because there's upside for success on both sides and I, and taking it a step further if if we can get the financing right up front, and again, this, that's something that opens so many doors, maybe they're, they they're rewarded for staying in the space longer and they can earn equity in the entire project. So in the same way that a startup would have kind of um, equity options or that you vest into the longer you stay. I think that you could do that with housing. You could do that with commercial space and, and retail partners like this. So um, lots of different ways to do that. But I think that as you do any of those things, the main point that I don't want to lose sight of is, is really how do you, you kind of create opportunities that don't currently exist for a population that might not otherwise have that. So I think that's, that's a big part.
0: Yeah, let's connect the dots here. Let's bring, let's bring that back full circle to opportunity zones because I think most people. My gut tells me that most people listening are probably nodding their heads to everything you're saying. There's and they're probably thinking, yes, you know that makes so much sense. Why is it not done like this? The model is broken. I know I am, and in the, from the first time we spoke, I was shaking my head. You know, yes, that makes so much sense. But I want to bring that back full circle to opportunity zones and how those come into play with a project like Chapel because um, you mentioned banks earlier and I think there's a linchpin here. There's sort of like a, uh, there's an issue, right? With the way it's been done for so long and the way that you're trying to approach it. There's a big challenge here with opportunity zones and banks and lending and raising capital. And what is that challenge for those of us that aren't totally versed in the process?
1: So I I I spend more time in my days, my weeks talking to bankers than I wish I did. Uh, it's been it's been a big part of uh, of my life for the last year certainly and and beyond. But but pretty heavy in the last year. So uh, I've gone pretty deep down this rabbit hole and 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 really just in the last few months through the through lockdown through. I mean, it's it's been almost impossible for a lot of that where banks just kind of closed up shop and are currently still. Seemingly very nervous about the future. And so I'd start with saying that the nature of a bank is to not lose money. You know, it is, it is uh, built into everything they do. Uh, They do not want to lose money and they have created checklists of things that you have to check off all of these boxes in the exact right way or else this deal is too risky or it's outside of what we do. And that has led to the things that they'll finance. Are things that all again start looking very much the same. They have to be. You hear a lot about the the (laughs) uh, credit-worthy tenants, so that's going to be you know really the the companies. uh, That's certainly not going to include the uh, the local the local restaurant or barbershop that doesn't have good credit, right? And so they can't get a loan if that if that's if. And I can't get a loan if those are my tenants because that's that's something they feel is too risky. So there, there's there's that side of it, really, if if you're trying to challenge any sort of conventional way of doing things and think through, there's no amount of logic that can convince a banker that doing it another way is actually less risky, That is that does not exist. And even if the banker agrees, then their boss won't, and so it doesn't get done. So all to say, like, if any sort of speculative side of things, I mean, you, you can go get really expensive money, but we talked about what that does for a project like this kind of forces you down a certain path. And and um so really, if you want to get a good construction loan or really any sort of conventional loan, you have to go buy the book. Um, and hopefully that changes over time, but it, it's certainly the way it is now. You bring opportunity zones, again, just to bring it full circle, um, you bring those into the equation here, and I think it it starts to open up the floodgates a little bit. Uh, you can, as more and more institutional capital, or angel investors, or whatever whatever the source of that capital is, uh, as that flows into these neighborhoods, I think that it it opens up the doors for banks. It helps. It helps start the process um, for for. Bringing capital into interesting projects like this. So I think that it's a, it's a start. And I think that the mindset is of the OZ capital is, um, is the beginning of maybe, maybe some of these things helping. And, you know, when you add in other things like crowdfunding and, and new options for ways to finance projects, I think that all these things will play together rather than having just one silver bullet answer for that. So, um, that, that's, that's certainly a part of, of what I'd like to challenge in the market and, and hopefully, again, rinse and repeat uh, so that we can bring a new model for, for ways to get some things like this done in the future.
0: Matt, as we begin to wrap up here, I do want to hear about what you think this idea of creative placemaking is going to mean for the chapel you know, given all the change we've seen this year with with COVID and I would say shifting priorities with businesses, with the remote work from home models, things like that, how does that take shape, you know, kind of looking into the next few years with the project? You know, what is the future of these spaces? I think that's kind of the the broad, open-ended question I'm, I want to task you with trying to answer right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a big question. Uh I've got lots of thoughts. There's lots of people that have <laughs> thoughts on this and no one, no one truly knows. So I'll preface it with that. I'll, I'll give a, my best guess uh, of how I see this playing out. And I think I'm, I'm in kind of a unique position to act on some of these ideas and, and experiment with how this could look. So the future of these spaces, I think, um, Really, I I don't think it's going to be one or the other. I think there will be a blend. It it seems to me that really the the big question is what exactly is that mix? It's not going to be exactly the way it was in terms of everybody going into their headquarter office and you can't work from home. And I don't think it's, uh, hey, everybody's going to work from home all the time either. I mean, I I certainly can't. There are people, I mean, you you hear some people love it and, and even the people who love it, don't want to do it every single day, typically. You still need that, uh, I believe, you need that community. You need to have a place of of social interaction and creative interaction, and that happens with people. So as things change, as confidence in the ability to go out and not get sick, I think that we'll forget a lot of, of, um, of our current state or the state of the last six months. Um, but the world will be different nonetheless. So when it comes down to it, I think the how it's designed um is is a is a big part of this and flexibility is the is a key for this. Not only because no one knows how this will play out, so you need to be flexible in what spaces can be used for. Um, but I think that uh we have to uh figure out how to design in a way that if you need more density, you can adapt in the future as well. So a big part of that flexibility is is big and and flexibility in in the leases and terms as well. Um, One thing that I'm I'm really thinking about a lot right now is, so you have have kind of the co-working model, which is a a very flexible version of of a conventional lease, right, you have monthly, some of them you have to sign up for a year. What if we took that even a step further and created this, this place that you can come in and out and use a kind of like a gym? Think about a gym business model where a gym has. 2000 members but only room for uh, 200 people in it at any given point and that's what makes the numbers work for the gym if everybody shows up that's a problem but it really does so if you think about that within this kind of space then the price can come down for each person it becomes more accessible and then you are able to again adapt and have people just there two days a week if they need to be and and have the flexibility to do that so so really like all of this Kind of comes into how we use the space. Um, as our homes become more of a, of a hub for us, for, for a lot of people, I think, and then the office changes. I think that this, this idea of work, social, like the blending of all of that needs to be a, a big part of that. And that's, and that's really, I guess, again, to come full circle into what I want chapel to be. I want it to blend those things and, uh, and create the community that would, really come as a result of those things.
0: Matt, I love it. I, I really appreciate your time today. This is great discussion. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how the chapel project grows and evolves over time. And we're hitting the last question right now. It's usually one of my favorite questions because it kind of taps into the mind of, you know, where is Matt? Where's Matt looking? What's Matt reading? And it really comes down to who else you think we should be paying attention to out there that's doing groundbreaking, inspiring, exciting work. Who are those people that come to mind? I'd love to to know and share those links in the show notes.
1: Uh, First ones that come to mind, and and if you follow them at all, you'll hear some common threads. I've probably stolen a lot of their ideas and called them my own for this guy named Jor Poleg. Um, He he wrote a book called Rethinking Real Estate that is awesome Um, and... Has a newsletter. I highly recommend um, someone he works closely with, guy named Anthony Slumbers. Other developers, there's kind of a developer that that uh, a group that I want to be when I when I grow up uh, called Shift Capital. They're out of Philadelphia. A guy named Brian Murray. I think they they have just done an incredible job of showing what neighborhood and community development can look like within within spaces like this. Um, and another group called Access Ventures. I think they're out of out of Louisville. That um, that has, has really challenged me and, and uh, informed a lot of my thought about um, community development too and how investment actually spurs a lot of that on. So those, those are the ones that come to mind.
0: Matt, thank you so much for your time today. There's only one more thing to do here and that is to roll out the red carpet for you, my friend. So just tell the world what you're up to and where they can find you online.
1: Sure. Uh, appreciate it, Chris. Really enjoyed it. Um, uh, chapel is, is the number one thing. It's a website's just chapelgvl.greenville.com. Let's see, I do a lot of writing just on LinkedIn, so feel free to connect with me there. Probably the best place to connect. Uh, And otherwise, um, we can go from there, but appreciate you having me on.
0: Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much, Matt, appreciate your time. Thanks, Chris. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at AuthenticFF.com slash Transforming Cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.